Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. God gives us his word for our good, inspired through the, the Spirit, completely without error, and perfectly able to accomplish the purposes of God. Hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, the king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Examples abound in our culture that one of the ways to to go about life, according to most people, is to constantly be evaluating all of the things in your life to make sure that you have the the best combination of things that works to the, the, the greatest result of your best interests. I was reminded of how, in many ways, this has, has gone into the world of Christian thinking and Christian publishing. There's a, a book that was recently published, and in it, the author said, before you think about whether or not, I'm paraphrasing her, of course, but before you think whether or not to serve someone, Uh, you need to to decide whether or not this person will serve you back if you ever need it. In other words, don't serve someone unless you're certain that they'll serve you back. On a communion Sunday, that kind of thinking uh, confronts us in light of the cross. If Jesus would have lived his life this way, would we be gathered here as one body of believers And looking to his work and and the perfection of it. No, we wouldn't. Because of the cross and because of what Christ finishes for us on the cross. It teaches us about what what Christian service is all about. And if we found, if we we find and and base our faith on Christ and his work. we're, We're not always going to be obsessed with ordering our lives around achieving what we want for ourselves. We're not going to be obsessed with avoiding anything uncomfortable. But rather we will allow the cross to bring us to a deeper awe and thankfulness of our God and our Savior. 
Ultimately, it brings us to service to God and to to love for neighbor, laying down our life and and dying dying to ourselves, knowing that the work for our Lord is not in vain. Let's think about these things as we as we go to this passage today. First, we see the distorted accusation of Jesus. Secondly, the determined silence of Jesus. And lastly, the dreadful mockery of Jesus. Pilate would not really be interested in someone who blasphemes the Jewish religion. This wouldn't be a problem for him. Of course, the, the Jewish religious leaders know that this would be the case. So uh, when they, they bring him... When they bring Jesus before Pilate, they they know that they need to say things that are going to stick in his ear, going to ring in the ear of Pilate and and make it seem as though Jesus is really a problem. Their first accusation is that this man leads us astray. He he subverts our nation. Uh, There are echoes there all the way back to Exodus chapter 5. And and we've seen Luke do this a a number of times in his gospel. The, The religious leaders of Israel continually align themselves with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses stands before him, speaks on behalf of God and he says, let my people go. In chapter 5, actually what Moses is saying is, let us take a three-day trip out into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice and that we may worship God the way that he commands us. Pharaoh says to Moses, you're, you're leading your people astray. The irony, of course, there in Exodus and here in the Gospel of Luke is that Moses and Jesus were leading God's people into true worship of God. They were leading them into the right place. They were leading them in the correct path. So this accusation against Jesus is rather ironic. Secondly, they say something that, if it were true, would ring in Pilate's ear. This man opposes taxes to Caesar. Clear distortion of what Jesus said all the way back in chapter 20. Famously, what did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. See, what Jesus says there, very clearly, is that money is not the most important thing in this world. Money is not our greatest aim. And if the one who has been placed over you demands that you pay taxes, you ought to do that. But Jesus has said there's something deeper. What is more important than money What is more important than the bottom line is service to God and giving yourself to the one who has created you. The religious leaders of Israel don't like this because they're lovers of money, as Jesus has said. So they distort what Jesus has said, bring it before Pilate. Of course, if someone's leading a revolution that's going to include them not paying taxes to the Roman Empire, this would be a problem. But it's, of course, not correct. They say that Jesus claims to be Christ, a king. It's interesting to think about what what Luke is actually doing here. As Jesus is in front of the the, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, he doesn't say that in so many words. They say, are you the son of God? He says, you have said so. Right? Jesus, all throughout the gospel, he he commanded Peter to, to not openly proclaim Jesus as saying that he is the Christ or the son of God or the Messiah. Of course, we know that he is, and Luke has been telling us and showing us that he is. The way that the religious leaders have distorted this, though, is that uh, Jesus has not proclaimed himself to be some kind of subversive and revolutionary leader. He's not coming for Caesar's throne. He's doing something deeper. 
leading people out of their bondage to sin. But they bring this to Pilate to try and have Pilate hear that this is, this is someone who's going to lead a revolution. This is someone who hates Rome, who hates your position, who hates those above you. And uh, he is going to, to turn our generally submissive nation of Israel into a very rebellious one. Pilate hears all this and basically says directly to Jesus, is this true or rather are you the king of the Jews? Verse 3 in our translation is, is a bit too interpretive as it was before uh, when Jesus was before the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus doesn't really say yes you have said so or yes it is as you have said. He merely says you are saying this. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says you are saying this. It's, it's an enigmatic response. Uh, what, what Luke is reminding us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that what Jesus, who Jesus is has been clearly laid out. As Jesus said in the previous passage, if I tell you, you won't believe me. Who he is has been made clear throughout the gospel. Pilate, though, comes to the only possible conclusion that a reasonable person could come to. This man has not done anything that is worthy of arrest, punishment, let alone death. He has done none of these things. The irony is that here you have a a pagan ruler who looks at the Messiah, the Son of God, and all the evidence is laid out before him, and he says, this man has done nothing wrong. Think about how condemning of an indictment that is to the religious leaders of Israel who have been amongst Jesus, been following him, been listening to his words. And they have arrested him and handed him over into the hands of this Roman governor. This kind of thought would be repugnant in the mind of an Israelite that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. And that the religious establishment would look at him, interact with him. And hand him over uh, to a Roman governor in order to seek to get him punished and killed. This entire account shows us the evil that arises from a lack of belief in Jesus Christ. They distort their accusations. What does Jesus do in the face of all of it? He remains quiet. Evil intentions are, are reigning here. Pilate, Herod, the religious leaders, it all sort of works together to to bring about this improbable result of an innocent man being indicted, condemned, and crucified. The Gospel of John has a very interesting interaction, protracted interaction between Jesus and Pilate. I think probably the, the, the most fascinating interaction in all of Jesus' ministry is Jesus before Pilate in the Gospel of John. Pilate says, you're a king then. Jesus says, I have come not to overthrow kingdoms. I have come not with the sword. I have come to testify to the truth. And then he looks at Pilate and says this, and everyone who is of the truth, everyone who is on the side of truth, listens to me. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. If you are of the truth, you listen to and you follow Jesus. If you are of the truth, you heed his command to repent and believe the gospel. You trust in his saving work for your sin. You recognize him to be exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Pilate sounds very postmodern when he comes back at Jesus. He says, what is truth? What is truth? And then he doesn't even stick around to hear the answer, right? He, he leaves the room. What is truth? He says, he doesn't care 
for truth. He cares about saving his, his place of authority. He cares about getting Jesus off of his hands. In, in the Gospel of John, he's, he's very worried about Jesus. He doesn't know what to do with him, but uh, the reason he does what he does is because he just wants to get rid of him. Here in the Gospel of Luke, we see a bit of the same thing. He hears that Jesus is a Galilean from Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at this time, probably for the Passover. And when Herod is in Jerusalem for something like this, uh, he doesn't have the the authoritative jurisdiction that he does when he goes back uh, to where he reigns. But this is a bit of a a friendly gesture uh, from Pilate, but also probably one that says he just wants to get rid of Jesus. Herod, of course, finds nothing wrong with Jesus either, and eventually he will be sent back to Pilate. If you piece together all of the Gospels, you see that up to this point, since Jesus' arrest, he has stood before Annas, Caiaphas, the Jewish council, Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate once again. In none of these interactions does Jesus say anything that's incriminating, But also in none of these interactions does Jesus sort of become the defense lawyer for himself. He doesn't say, well, let's have a case. Let's have a trial. I want to defend my name and my honor, my right to speak for myself. Why? Because if he were to do that, then it would look as if he's desperately trying to avoid what what lies before him. But he's not. He's willingly going to the cross. Even as people look at his life and say, this man's done nothing wrong. This man's not a threat. He's not defending himself. We read in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is to break our hearts. To see our God. To see our Savior treated in this way. To see the most righteous man who ever walked the earth betrayed, mocked, belittled, unjustly accused. All these things together remind us of the wonderful work of our Savior. First Peter picks up on Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who who judges justly. Ravi Zacharias points out that this is kind of an instance of ancient organized crime. Self-interest and evil motives are all sort of working together to make this result come about. Uh, The the Jewish leaders want to, to maintain their place of pride and position amongst the Israelites. Pilate wants to to be rid of it. He just kind of wants to dismiss it. Herod wants to show himself as as sort of a a willing underling underneath the emperor of Rome and the Roman governors. Self-interest brings about this kind of injustice. And it's to to, to impress upon us the, the sinfulness, the fallen nature of our world. Imagine that a man, the only sinless person who has ever lived ends up on trial, arrested, accused, condemned, and crucified. That is how fallen this world is. That the one who comes to it as perfectly righteous ends up being killed. To impress upon our hearts and our minds, wow, that is how pervasive sin really is. 
Reminds me of uh, A Man for All Seasons with Sir Thomas More when he is unjustly accused. And what does he say, right, when he is condemned? He says, I, I do none harm. I speak none harm. I think none harm. And if that be not enough to keep a man alive in this world, then in good faith I long not to live. Jesus, the righteous one, the innocent one, condemned and killed. There are echoes here of Psalm 2 with the, the kings of the earth that are huddled together against the Lord and his anointed. Uh, the ones who are obsessed with their own power, the ones who are operating out of self-interest, standing against the one who has given them that authority. There's also echoes here of Deuteronomy chapter 19, which is accept the testimony of something based on two witnesses. Here you have Herod and Pilate together looking at Jesus and objectively saying, there's nothing to condemn this man to show us that indeed he is innocent. He is perfectly righteous, the one in whom no deceit is found. Also ever present is the crowd here. Verse 4, they reappear. The, cr- the crowd reappears. And, and in a sense, that seems like it's to get us to imagine our place in it. That the shiftiness of the crowd who will cheer for Jesus. And later, many of them, probably who cheered for Jesus, will be crying out that he would be crucified. To show us the shiftiness of the human heart. And how often our allegiances can change based on our own self-interest and what is good for us. What breaks our heart most directly, though, is the dreadful mockery that Jesus endures in this passage. This happens at the hand of, of Herod, and it's a stern warning to us of the danger of a cold and dead conscience. We see what happens when people lack faith in Jesus Christ, the kind of evil they are, uh, they are capable of. And here we see the danger of a cold, dead conscience that is shut off to Jesus. Herod was worried about Jesus all the way back in chapter 11. People had said, this is John the Baptist who has come back to life. Herod killed John the Baptist, so he would have been interested in that kind of a claim. But by the time this comes around, Herod is pleased. Why? Because he thinks Jesus might perform some sign or miracle for him. In doing so, Herod is like this generation. Remember, Jesus talks about this generation being an evil generation. Why? It demands signs. It demands miracles. It's only going to believe in the things that it sees. Herod becomes sort of a representative then of this generation. It's it's an exercise in self-sovereignty. I'm going to be the one who decides if this Jesus is worthy of dignity or honor. If this is someone whom I should revere. And it brings forth a a poisonous mindset in Herod. In what Jesus calls this generation. And all throughout our world. Is God there for me? Or am I here for him? Is God there for me? Or am I here for him? Herod has it reversed. He thinks Jesus is there for his entertainment. Or for him to judge. But Jesus keeps his mouth shut. We, say, uh, we read that he doesn't say anything to Herod, answer any of his questions here. Herod decides he might as well have a little fun with him. So he gives him an elegant robe. It says this is probably one of Herod's clothes, uh, articles of clothing. Uh, maybe something he didn't care about. Maybe it was out of style. We don't know. Probably some of Herod's clothes. They put it on him and they mock him. This is our Savior and our God. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, treated In this way, how dangerous a cold, dead conscience can be. 
to be passed by so closely by Jesus and to miss him. Psalm 113 says this about God. The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? You'd say this is about Jesus, true God. Our God is seated on high, Psalm 113 says. He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He looks far down. He is so far removed from us. John Owen makes the point that if this is true about who God is in his essence, then how glorious is the incarnation itself? How glorious it is that this God would come and enter into the lowliest state of humanity. But then he connects the dot to the cross. How much more glorious then is the work of Christ as our mediator the one who went to the cross, the one who suffered all of these things unjustly, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. What shall we say unto these things? That God spared not his only son but gave him up to death. And all the evils included therein for poor lost sinners all this christ and underwent for our sins let us pray that as we approach the table god might bring us to sigh and groan over our sin even as our hearts break we think about what he went through it's not necessarily pleasant to think about all of those things but when the feeling the experience of our sin and corruption is most is most present to us, that is when it is weakest. That's why the recounting of the gospel, the recounting of the life of Christ, is such a a healthy spiritual exercise for us, because as it brings our sin and corruption before us, that is when our sin and corruption is weakest. It's not when we don't feel it. It's not when we feel like it isn't there. That's when it's most dangerous. So as we come before the table this morning, think of the Lord, mocked, blasphemed, tortured for you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You think about that mindset of Herod, is God there for me or am I here for him? He had it reversed, but the the glory of the gospel is that you do see a God who is there for you. He's there for you to finish the work for you, to accomplish salvation for you, but Because of who he is, is the glorious one who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. The only response, the only reasonable response is for us to say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we approach the table, you would bring these realities to us. The reality of our sin, our need for salvation, and the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We trust in you, and we pray in his name. Amen. If you would take your insert as we...